Good afternoon, everybody, or possibly good evening, depending on where you are. It's our pleasure today to welcome back Rick Blyweiss and introduce you also to Heather Graham. Um, and they're going to be talking to you about murder in Wex, sorry, Hacksford. I keep wanting to say Wexford. I think I'm Ruth Rendell indoctrinated or something. <laughs> that was her, her community. Anyway, murder in Hacksford. Um, do you want to pronounce, you'll do a better job with his name than I will, Rick. It's Pignon Scorpion. So it is Pignon. Okay. Right. Such an odd name. Why did you come up with Pignon Scorpion? Because it's odd? Yes. Uh, you know, when I thought of it, Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes are not your run-of-the-mill names either. So I thought if I'm going to create a character, let me come up with something that's a little left of center. And I, uh, with Scorpion having an Egyptian father, uh, I looked for an Arabic Egyptian last name that I thought was cool. And I liked Scorpion, which is that. And then uh, I postulated in the first book that his parents met in Haiti, where his mother lived in the region called Pignon. So I just liked the way those two names went together. Uh, they do go together very well. And of course, there are bursts of French or sort of French. Um, <laughs> sorry, I was a French major at Stanford, so I have to, you know, get. Um, so it sort of all fits together and gives him a slightly international flavor, although he's actually um, stationed in this little village in 1910, England. So Rick has very kindly signed copies for us, which Jacob can show you when we pop back to that. And I'm going to turn this over to Heather and Rick and see what they have to say. Thank you, Barbara. I was going to say one of my favorite things. Um, I mean, I think most of us who write wound up doing so because we love to read so much. And um, that is that is still one of my favorite things. But one of my favorite things in a book is the characters. And one of the things that you do that I especially like and uh, hearing that now, I know that you really put some deep thought into them is, do you take characteristics from people that you know? Um, how do you create the people that really come to life for a reader? Heather, realistically, in this book, in these this series, I actually haven't modeled any of the characters after anyone I know. Um, you know, there, there are plotters and pantsers. That, that's the way generally authors write. Uh, plotters plot things in advance and pantsers fly by the seat of their pants. I'm a pantser. I see it play out in my head like a movie and those characters are just there. And so my job is to sit at my computer keyboard and try to capture what I'm seeing in my brain for someone who could eventually read the book. So uh, no, I, I mean, I wish to some degree it would have made my life easier, I guess, if <laughs> I did. But no, they're not based on anyone I know. Okay. okay, that leads to the second question. What made you pick 1910? Okay, I picked 1910 for a number of reasons. One, <laughs> um, according to Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, was deceased prior to 1910. And according to um, Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot had not quite risen to the level of fame that he had by 1910. So I thought that was a cool year to put some a character in between these other two characters and their timelines. But in, in addition uh, to that, it was kind of a, a, a cool year in the sense that um, the telephone started catching on in that year in England, the automobile was just catching on in that era. It was actually the first year that file cabinets were ever used in offices. But then I also learned in researching, and I do a lot of research for the books to get the minutia right, that like in 1910 was when Edward VII died and his son George V became king. So there, there was like, you know, that power turnover, if you will. Um, also, the very first uh, round trip nonstop flight over the English Channel took place that year by a man named Charles Roy Rolls, 
whose partner was Henry Royce. Therefore, you have Rolls and Royce, or Roy, Rolls Royce, where it came from. But Rolls also ended up that year being the first aviation fatality in history when his plane crashed. Um, it, Thomas Crapper, who invented the toilet, he died that year. Florence Nightingale died that year. Um, I, I just thought it, there was no hot water. It, they, they just boiled cold water out of their taps in, in like um, copper pans and things like that. And I, I just thought it was a pivotal year. It was pre the First World War. And I just thought it was a central year for things to start changing in the world. Well, that I was going to say that too. That is one of the things that I, I'm a total history buff and I love the attention to detail that you give history. Um, and actually, I, I would have never known that there really was a Thomas Crapper if you hadn't just said that. Oh, I, thought it was. <laughs> I thought everybody knew about Thomas Crapper. No, I, I, I always, crudely, I always thought it was a reference to what was done. <laughs> you know, no, I, think, I think the reference comes from, from his name. Yeah, it does. I, I guess it does. Yeah. But I mean, doesn't that seem kind of, I don't know, either iconic or weird or something for your name to be Crapper and you invent the place where one, you know, does things. <laughs> it's like it just, well, it's, it's a know. really difficult immortality. <laughs> and probably few of us would actually like to be known in that particular regard, but um, <laughs> Wow. You know, it's, I mean, England was, was the advance party in the Industrial Revolution. They, they really moved it along during the 19th century. And many of the inventions that we, or whatever that we take for granted, were actually originated in England and, you know, in, in America. But um, plumbing. Well, if you were to ask my dad, it was really Scotland. <laughs> I don't think that Thomas Crapper was in Scotland. I think they were still <laughs> probably using... not. Oh, I don't think we don't up to that one. <laughs> yeah, I think they were probably still using castle walls and privies and stuff. I mean, that's cold in Scotland. Possibly. You would have thought they would actually have been bigger fans of indoor plumbing in Scotland because it was so cold. <laughs> oh, well, we digress. But anyway, that's, that's an excellent reason for 1910. I would say the other good reason is that it it's far enough away from World War One, because England is not is going to change irrevocably as soon as the war starts. So you're in that last golden period, you know, the end really basically of the extended Victorian era, and everything's going to be different. I totally agree, and I purposely did not want to set it anywhere close to World War One because it would change the dynamics of everything that was going on, and I really. I didn't feel that's what I wanted to write about. So you're you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, all the characters in the book, with with some exceptions, are totally fictional. But I also try to weave real historic people and events in. And like in in this particular book, uh, Charles Holroyd, who was the Holroyd, who was the uh, director of the National Gallery of British Art, and Thomas Hodge, who was the head of Sotheby Williams and Wilkinson, which was the original name of Sotheby's. I used them as real characters to move the action along and they were real people. So I had to do a lot of research on them to make sure I knew what they were about. I, and, and I love that. that. That's absolutely fascinating that you do that. That's like, is my, one of my favorite things is, and then I love it too when you're reading and there's names you're gonna know and you know that they were real. And then sometimes you're like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to look this up. And find out if it's real or not because it does blend in so beautifully so cool but i take it too that you were a big fan of uh both hercule pro row and how did i just go blank <laughs> um, thank you yeah the other one <laughs> yeah i um i i loved as i was growing up I loved mystery and science fiction specifically. Not that I didn't read more, I did. I, I was very, read a lot when I was a child, but I, I really kind of started with the Hardy Boys. And then from the Hardy Boys, 
I definitely went to, I read every Agatha Christie story book, Miss Marple, Poirot, everybody. I read all the homes. And then, of course, you know, I, I went on and, and, you know, Rick Stout and uh, Earl Stanley Gardner and, um, uh, I, you know, just all the masters of, of that era, um, uh, Ellery Queen, I just devoured them. And uh, but but Poirot and Holmes were my two favorites, favorite. just absolutely my two favorites. That's cool. What about Edgar Allan Poe? I liked Edgar Allan Poe. I, I yeah, I, I kind of always thought that Poe was more of a surrealist and a horror writer to some degree, more than a classic mystery writer. Um, but I love Poe too, no question. Yeah, but he's curious for you. You know, he's, I mean, he's mid, mid 19th century and there was um, a whole thing, I mean, just to be scholarly about this, uh, mid 19th century, a crime <laughs> novel was really mostly a novel of sensation. So it was Wilkie Collins and, you know, um, The Woman in White or his other book, which I'm temporarily forgetting, but there was a, there was still a, often a sort of a supernatural or psychological suspense kind of a quality to it. It was really Doyle that pushed the rational detective. So. I, had, I just read an article that credited Poe with being the first master of the detective novel. That's why I was curious if you had gotten into it or whether you agreed with that or disagreed with that. Well, you know, he did. I think you'd have to say that um, the, um, the Purloin Letter, you know, is an excellent example of that. He did write three, once a novella, what is it, the monkey, I'm trying yeah. to remember the name, the monkey paw, whatever. But there's a lot of question about whether he really was the first detective. Yeah. There was a woman whose name I'm also forgetting. Sorry, I didn't come to this. Uh, Shirley yet. Jackson. Um, no, I mean a Victorian era. Oh, oh okay. Um, um, who also, who may really have, <laughs> um, you know, some of the earliest detective things. Um, and yeah, Poe gets okay. most of the credit for the murders in the room org. That's it. I couldn't think of it. The murders in the room <laughs> and the purloined letter. But really, I think that that what we think of the mystery is much more is much more a Conan Doyle. Yeah. Oh, now, yeah, I think so. But I'm just saying this this letter credited him with being, or this article, I'm sorry, credited him with being the first to really create uh, the detective novel that inspired others. So that's uh, um, it's you know, any and as in all reading. It's subjective, you know, her, it's her, her opinion. So, I mean, it may be right, it may not be right. Yep. Oh, I, I bet it probably is right that he was possibly the first. Um, but I, I think Barbara hit the nail on the head that it was really Doyle that just kind of like. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what Poe did was see Auguste Dupin uh, was create the first kind of iconic sleuth. Um, because he appears in those and the other people who were writing didn't necessarily have like a series character um, and and he is yeah. one. so that you know I think that's why he gets that credit is that you know Dupin is such an interesting character and and sleuth yep yep, yep. so where do you get your plots from well I get my plots from my imagination and partially from my life. Um, for, for example- Good to know, Rick. <laughs> Glad yeah. we're at a distance. Well, no, no, I'll, I'll explain the, the from my life part. Um, in, <laughs> back to the first book for a second. Um, in the first book, one of the murders took place at a circus and I produced a circus in San Diego. Um, so I kind of, it it uh, it resonated with me. I remember it, all of everything that went on, and I recreate the milieu, if you will. Um, I was in England, and I went to a castle there, and I got entered into a crossbow shooting contest. Uh, and I had never shot a crossbow before, and I won the contest. I don't know, but I did. And now the crossbow plays a part in one of the crimes in this book. Um, I will tell you something that it, it was not a great experience because those both were great experiences. 
But back when I worked in the record industry, and you can see some of my plaques behind me, um, when, when I was in the music industry, I got a call from the police one day and uh, they said, would you come over and meet us at this address in Manhattan? I, in my office was in Manhattan. I said, sure, am I in trouble or something? You know, and they go, no, 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 we, we, need, we need your eyes on something. I had no clue what. I show up at the address and there's police tape outside. And they explained to me that a promotion man who worked for me, he had worked for me, uh, was murdered in his apartment. And that my business card was found on his desk. So they wanted me to come over to see if I could see if anything was out of place or missing. Was it a robbery? Was it a crime of hate or, or what? And uh, I remember that vividly because as I walked up the stairs to his uh, apartment, which is on the first floor, the uh, there was blood covering the banister on both sides. There was blood pooled all over the floor in his apartment. And I felt like helpless because I had never been to his apartment before. I would have had no idea if anything was out of place, but that that scene, vividly was etched in my mind. Unfortunately, two days later, I had to go back and go there and meet his parents there, the young man's parents, um, which was a kind of a devastating uh, situation. And part of the reason that I decided to write mystery novels that don't have a lot of blood and gore is partially because of that experience and how shocking and, and utterly negative the experience was. And I wanted to give my readers more of an uplift and a, re a relief from their stress rather than further stress them the way I was in that, in that event. So some of it is tied into my life and some of it just pops into my brain and I go, oh, that's cool. Let's go with it. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I, there's a, a phrase my wife told me about a couple of days ago that I didn't know. Maybe you guys know it intimately. It's called flow. And it's when you get so immersed in something that it flows and you you lose awareness of the world around you because you're sucked into that thing that's flowing in your brain. That's what happens to me when I write. I get lost into those characters and, and that event and Nothing else exists for me at that time. That is really nice. Did they ever catch whoever killed the young man? They did not. Oh, uh, oh. absolutely did not. Oh. He he was oh. like, he was a gay man, <laughs> and they thought it might have been a gay-related hate crime, but they never oh. found it. Oh, that's that must be horrible for the parents. Yeah, that that is one thing um, that I like about being the writer, and I'm assuming you do too, is that uh, we do make sure that they get caught. <laughs> That's nice. And I know it's not always true in real life. No. So, so Heather, you've written over 200 novels. Where? Well, let's ask you that question. Where do you get all your ideas? <laughs> this, the same thing as Rick is saying. A lot of them are from, um, this is, I'm, I grew up in the city of Miami, and we've had uh, some interesting history here. When I was a teenager, they found dozens of barrels with bodies in them in the Everglades. And we've had some very interesting things. <laughs> so a lot of it comes, as Rick was saying, from life, you know, a lot from the people. I do take from the people around me, though. Um, there's, um, I was at a, uh, I've always, I've, I'm like Rick. And again, one of the reasons I love his work so much is the detail to history. Um, but uh, I, like, like I said, I love, I'm fascinated by our culture in, in South Florida. I love the Miccosukee tribe. I love the Seminole tribe. Yes, I love the hard rock too, but um, <laughs> their histories are fascinating. And I was actually at a powwow one day and I saw one of the most striking looking individuals I had ever seen and uh, wound up chatting with them a little bit. And uh, he was, uh, he was half Apache and half Irish. And I thought, okay, that's America for you. So he, uh, I definitely modeled the character after him because I just, I just thought he was fascinating and uh, extremely intelligent man and, and just charming and uh, a wonderful example of um, 
history again, you know, everything that happens, you know, within, um, I love us as a country because I think we're kind of like, you know, if you have a dog that's a mutt, everybody will tell you that's the best because they'll live the longest and they'll, they'll they usually have all good traits. And so I think, uh, I think America's made out of mutts and I love it. I think we're everything different in the world. And I think that's fun to use while we're working too. And I think Rick does sometimes not so much in the 1910 England, but I've seen some of the things you've done. Well, I'm also slightly uh, getting away from mystery for a second. I'm, I'm writing a book right now um, that takes place contemporarily, and it's about an 80-year-old ex-army lifer whose wife dies, and he's really old and crotchety, and he's living with his daughter and son-in-law, and he's just making their life unbearable. So they move him into a senior home, and he doesn't want to be there, and it's his adventures with the other residents there at, and they try to fend off a gang of youths who are harassing them. Um, it's kind of a cross between Home Alone and Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Uh, it sounds uh, great. Sounds fun. I brought it up is because virtually <clears throat> every resident in that home is based on somebody I do know in real life. Okay. And so there's where I'm using people that I know and hopefully disguising me enough that I don't get sued. Uh, well, yeah, you, you always have to be careful with that. But um, yeah, I, I, I think I make them, you know, put them a little bit different enough so that, you know, you're not going to get sued. The only thing is I, I will have, and I'm sure this happens to almost everyone, somebody write you and tell you, oh, I'm so happy you used my name in your book. And <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you're happy. I, you know, I didn't know. Um, but, you know, names are and then sometimes you are going to run into one that when you put two of them together that actually are someone so yeah, that's a question that comes up quite a lot recently in author events is that fans want to know where authors get names so we've had some really interesting answers mark grady i thought was the most fascinating he said and, that he's decided that very few people are really I'm trying to think is volleyball fans and so he goes and gets lists of volleyball teams, international volleyball teams, and then he picks like a front name oh, and puts them together. Something, you know? And you're right that probably <clears throat> statistically he'll wind up with somebody who actually has has that name. But I thought, you know, what a clever what a clever way to to go about it. But yeah. when you're writing historical fiction, Rick, do you find that you look, um, you know, and I mean, there are records, there are possibly probably too early for telephone directories and all, but there's a, you know, cause names change. Names are really fashionable. Somebody told me the other day that I live like five Susans. I have a daughter, I have um, an employee, I have two employees and somebody, anyway, five Susans in my life. And one of them said the other day, we must all be nearly the same age because Susan, <laughs> you know, was the thing. And then it passes on and nobody's <clears throat> called that anymore. When I was a small child, no one was named Heather. Then I was suddenly 17 or 18, and it must have come out as a name that year because I was jumping all the time because somebody would be yelling at their two or three-year-old, and I'm like, what, what, you know, because I nobody had it really, you know, a lot, certainly not down here until I was older. So I think it came in after that. And then we went through Whitney when Whitney became extremely popular, uh, and there, there are a couple of others that I've seen through the years, you know, become more, oh, I didn't know a soul named Jason when I named my oldest son. And then when he was playing baseball, Jason was at bat, Jason was pitching, and Jason was catching, you know, it just suddenly exactly. you know, became the same thing. But, you but know, names are hard. Yeah, if you're writing historical fiction, you do have to be yeah. reasonably careful, you know, to pick names that fit the period. And well, also I, pick names where you don't have three characters in the book who all have either the same name or names that sound very similar. So, you know, I think it's a challenging subject that probably readers don't give much thought to. But what I did was I did do searches online for the most popular names from 1900 to 1915 in England. And there are lists. And so... I printed the lists out and I made sure I didn't duplicate names, but I used the names of the era. You're absolutely right. Uh, that, that is how I came up with virtually all the names other than Scorpion. 
Well, that's a shame, wasn't it? <laughs> so, I have a friend who reads everything I write before I hand it in. Yeah. And she will write me notes um, saying, you have now used the name Adair 10 times. Perhaps you could change that one, but, you know, through books, through books through the years. Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, well, I had a lovely family named Adair at the corner right? <laughs> when I was growing up. And, and you do have a tendency to, but there, but that's why I'm very grateful I have somebody who catches it. When, you know, I try to name somebody the same thing over and over again. Well, the other thing that I had to research, uh, among other things, were the uh, phrases and curses that yeah. they written in that era. Because, uh, like, for example, I didn't know what death's head on a mop stick meant. But that was one of the most popular phrases then. And that's a sickly thin person. Um, I didn't know what a bed swerver was. A bed swerver's an adulterer. I mean, no. there are just some really cool, you know, cumberground, a useless person, a doorbell, a nincompoop. I didn't know these words, but I wanted to make sure I used the proper context. So I did a ton of research on phrases and curses and, you know, all those kind of things to get the period right. So well, what inspired you to ballooning? I mean, I think, I, you know, the, this book opens with some pretty dramatic scenes, but um, crossbows, you've already sort of mentioned, yeah. but have you ever actually gone up in a hot air balloon? I have. I've been up in a hot air balloon more than once. I've loved the experience. And what, what I found interesting, because I also spoke to the, uh, I don't know what their official title is, but the Ballooning Society of America, um, because I wanted to make sure that I got the propellant right for the era because it was not hot air back then. They were gas powered. So um, I, you know, we refer to them as hot air balloons and I do too, but in the book, I, I didn't call them that because they weren't. That was discussed later on how to propel them. But I've been up in the balloon in a balloon and more than once and I really enjoyed it. And I just felt again that was another experience I had that uh, you're right, Barbara, that just kind of naturally flowed because I could it what it felt like. Well, so I knew you had done that, but why? Why the first time? <laughs> what made you what what made me what? Oh no, I knew you'd been up in balloons. Um, in fact, I'd even registered when, but why, what, what made you do it the first time? You mean go up in a balloon? Uh-huh. Um, actually, the first time I went up on a balloon, I went up as a teenager with my father. He, uh -huh. he, he just wanted to give me the experience of being in a balloon. And then the second time I went up, um, I used to um, work very closely with all of our Nashville acts. And every year in Nashville, there's a thing called fanfare where all the acts play. It used to be at the racetrack. And um, one year, Arista Nashville threw a, a party for all their artists and, and all their record company people. And they had a hot air balloon there. And so I went up on it there too. I was, in fact, I was with uh, Kix Brooks and Ronnie Dunn of Brooks and Dunn that we were <laughs> together. <laughs> That is definitely fun. Okay, question. Do you, what part, you say that you're a pantser. So you just start off and you go. Um, what part do you find the most difficult beginning, middle, end? Well, the, the way I kind of write is that I do this pantser and I write, and then I stop writing and I go back and read what I wrote and make some edits and changes and things like that. And then I keep writing. And I, and I kind of do that until it's done. But the hardest part for me, I think, is the end when I have to go back and make sure I put in enough clues that a reader wouldn't go, well, how was I supposed to know that? Or that I didn't put in so many clues that somebody would figure it out four pages in, if you will. Um, you know, and make sure that there was consistency, red, enough red herrings, enough consistency. And that is painstaking to me. Writing is enjoyable. It's fun. I love the experience. Going back and making sure everything right is painstaking, not fun. I don't, I don't know. I personally always love that second set of eyes because, I mean, I'm, uh, 
totally grateful for editors and rewrites because I think there are things that I have looked at and I've seen them. So to me, they're right. And then all of a sudden someone else points out that, you know, you read there was a book on the table. You wrote there was a book table. <laughs> you know, the things that, you know, it's in, <clears throat> excuse me, it's in your head, right? Yeah. You know. Page <laughs> right. You know, I, I also, uh, when I complete the first draft of manuscript, I have two friends who are British and I make sure that they read it and correct whatever I got wrong from a Brit standpoint. And since I have one character who speaks <laughs> Eve, one of the barbers, I also have a French speaking friend who checks what I'm writing there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I really try to get those. I, I hope you're okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm okay. Just lingering cough, so, excuse me. So I, I just try to get as much right as I can and draw on, I've drawn on librarians, you know, I mean, they're a great <laughs> source. Well, Rick, you're publishing with a really interesting smaller publisher. It started out in audio, Blackstone is the name of it, and they're making a real name for themselves and publishing and do a certain amount of crime. Um, I don't think that copy editors that major publishers are particularly great anymore. I see so many mistakes. You know, um, and I'm not even sure that they're not largely not real people anymore, but, you know, using <laughs> whatever. But um, I'd like to think that Blackstone being smaller and really interested in quality, because I work with them a lot and I'm impressed by that. Maybe they actually have copy editors. I mean, real copy editors who would also be helped you. I always thought a copy editor was a safety net for an author that seems to be kind of disappearing. Um, well, Blackstone has two types of editors. They have developmental editors, and uh, some of them are on staff. Some are um, third-party uh, independent, but they use them so much that they might as well just be on staff. I mean, we, we take up all their time, if you will. Um, and we Blackstone tries to make sure that the right editor is paired with the right manuscript. And it's immaterial who acquired the book. What is material is, does the developmental editor have a simpatico, if you will, an experience in that genre? Then Blackstone also has line editors who go through all the grammar and everything. As yeah, the well, that's what I'm calling a copy editor, but a yeah, line editor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. Blackstone has specific people, and that's their job to get that right. Yes. we Blackstone really does. I'm glad you used the word quality because I think that's one of the hallmarks of Blackstone. Look, I, in full transparency, I work at Blackstone, but my agent went out with these books. She got multiple offers from multiple <laughs> publishers. And I chose to go with that because I believe in the company and I love the quality there. So, you know, I put my money where my mouth is, if you, if you will, in that regard. I, I think that um, I have worked with a girl, uh, a young, well, actually was, okay, over many years, I've worked with many, many people. Right. <laughs> and it always helps when you have an editor that you really gel with. And I think that's important. And that's one of the things that Blackstone tries to do. Um, I'm grateful right now. I was working with one woman for, oh gosh, years and years and I adored her. And uh, and she left and <laughs> she got a, went into more of the uh, tech movie department. And, uh, uh, but then I got a young man and I was wound up, you know, you're a little hesitant at first, but he's wonderful too. And, Recently, I've had copy editors who are, I would say, absolutely dedicated. So I think it always depends on who you have where. But like you were saying, the most important thing, which is really cool that, that uh, Blackstone does, is make sure that, that you don't put someone who absolutely loves mysteries on a sci-fi. You know, right. you need the person who actually, and I mean, that's not, lots of editors are like, us as readers like love all kinds of stuff but right. but you don't want your your happiest when somebody really loves the genre you're working in oh absolutely and i'll tell you i worked with two different editors uh, separate ones on each of the first two scorpion books and they had very very different styles the first editor 
absolutely made me a better author. I mean, more than working on the book, he worked on me and made me a, a, a better author. The second editor, I took everything that I had learned from the first editor and he was able to concentrate even more on the book and he made the book better. So I've really experienced two different styles of editing and they were both unbelievably helpful. Right. You, you, I, you can have strange things. I, I was working one time uh, with somebody who, a lovely human being, but I would write and the room was dim and she would want the light room to be poorly lit. But then Sam will have stood up twice on the same page and that wasn't caught. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we have to, you yeah. know, concentrate on, you know, some of these things. So you, it's just, it's just lucky in life. And, uh, uh, I'm very grateful right now that I am working with people that I truly enjoy and that I feel that, uh, you know, they're, they're making a book better by their questions, you know, not just nitpicking on things that might be somebody's opinion. Although right. I think what you were saying earlier about when I was in college, uh, one of our close friends, my, my, I got married at 18, my husband and I went to college together and a couple who were very good friends of it with us, uh, we're from, we're from uh, England and he would be so funny because he would be referring to going to see somebody and he would say, oh, I'm gonna knock her up, which of course in the United <laughs> States at the time meant that I'm going to go make her pregnant. And of course we had to try to tell him, you know, um, Robert, you don't say that here. <laughs> you know, say I'll knock on her door you know, or something <laughs> like that. But things do mean different things even in the very different uh, oh, yeah. English speaking countries. Oh, absolutely. We are two people divided by a common language is a, yeah. you know, a fair, a fair phrase. I had a very irate email today. I sent out a notice for an event we're doing next week in which I said, clearly it's seven o'clock mountain standard time, you know, because time zones are the hardest part of Zoom going away. Right. So I get this furious email back from some woman who wants to educate me in Greenwich Mean Time. I mean, come on, I went to Oxford. So, you know, it's not like I don't know it. <laughs> But she was enraged that I didn't calculate the time zones, you know, for, for everybody. Now, this is a person who is going to attend a free event. She's not going to buy a book or anything to support it. And yet, you know, I, it's amazing how entitled people feel sometimes, you know, about. But anyway, on and on she went about, you know, and I thought to myself afterward, why did I even respond? Because actually my first rule most of the time is don't engage. But I thought, you yeah. know, maybe she had a point. So I wrote her back very politely and said, you know, modern standard time is an international time. So, you know, and you don't have to watch it then. You can watch it anytime because it will say, and then I have like three more emails about, you know, why don't I understand that all time arrived starts in Greenwich and, you know, the whole bit. And I, I'm just fascinated by it. But that, it was an incredibly British centric, <laughs> point of view and it reminded me of you know if you're so writing if you're well, writing, I got, you took an yeah. american and that was the point of view for your story if if you had an american detective guesting in haxford then you would be protected from you know having to be authentically british uh, so you decide to write <laughs> a british detective in haxford and you're american then <laughs> Problems can arise. Um, and so, you know, you're fortunate that you have people you can consult that yeah. um, will help you kind of overcome. Do you remember, Heather, when Elizabeth George first started writing for British Mysteries? And Lord, she got all kinds of blowback from the oh. about how dare yeah. you do that, you know? It's just, but I do think, I, I don't think we're getting quite as much now, but I mean, I actually still... <clears throat> my mother was born in Ireland, my father's Scottish. And so when I was a little kid, all my books were things they had brought over here. Mm -hmm. And so I got in serious trouble in school for telling them, I'm sorry, they were wrong. Color was spelled C-O-L-O-U-R, <laughs> you know, Harbor, <laughs> P-O-U-R. And of course, my parents had to come into school and then explain the whole thing. But, um, and I learned, <laughs> I learned then that we're very different. But I think, um, I don't know. First of all, I think you did a great job. I read a lot of British authors. I think you did wonderfully. Thank you. Um, and 
I, I think we're, uh, I, sometimes when the story is totally engaging you, you will let little things go. And then again, Barbara, as you were saying, um, it is important that, you know, we have like real life copy editors because something, a missed word of this or that, things like that can take you out of the story when you were totally into it. That's so true. you know, you have a nitpicky who did write you a twenty-page letter. Of it. We once published a book when Poison Pen Press was a thing by a British author whose character was British, and she decided because her character was an academic, she was the president of a college in or the mistress of a college in Cambridge, to bring her over to do a guest stint in um, Muncie, Indiana, because the British author used to go to the crime conference in Muncie, so it was nice, Muncie, Indiana. So Jack comes over and spends her time there. And of course she's British, right? So she remains British while she's in Muncie, Indiana. And I got an eight page single space letter from some woman who pointed out every single thing that should have been changed. For example, it shouldn't have been a mobile. It should have been a cell phone. I mean, eight page letter. She went through the entire thing and I read it and I couldn't believe it. And I finally wrote her back and I said, perhaps you missed the thought that the character is British. She is writing about America as a Brit right. in the same way, you know, that you could take an American and, and have them go to England. And I, I, mercifully, there aren't that many fans like that, but, you know, there are readers whose object in life apparently is to correct authors. It's true, but it does come up. I, I have had a social, in social media, I have had people say to me, specifically what Heather was mentioning, well, your books aren't accurate because in England they spelled favor, F-A-V-O-U-R, and they spelled color. But in reality, I wrote it that way. And then Blackstone said, no, we need to use the American spelling for an American audience. And when the book comes out in England, they can change the spelling. Um, you can't win. You know, I mean, no. somebody wants to pick on no. it, you can't win. I know. It's just amazing to me that, you know, how people choose to spend their time. Talk to us a few minutes about the art, the art element, because you have two plots going on in this book. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to say that while I really like the balloon, I was very much engaged with the painting part of it. So, you know, why did you, I mean, to texture a novel, you really do have to have more than one thing going on. In fact, police, actual policemen, never work just one case at a time. I mean, that, that isn't how it works. So why did you decide to bring art into your balloon plot? Um, well, actually the, the art was more in the poisoning plot than the balloon plot. Uh, no, no, I know, but they're two different. Why did you decide to have, you could have done anything else. You could have had a diamond necklace missing. Why did you choose art? Um, well, first of all, I love art. I've always loved art. My house is filled with art. Um, and and I my wife was an art historian. And it's just, my parents were art aficionados. So it's just always been a part of my life. It's something I'm comfortable with and enjoy. And the next answer I can give you is, again, it just came to me. It was in my head and it flowed through me and there the art was there and you know I had to do a little research to make sure that I was nailing the artists of the era uh, you know like J.W. Turner and others but um, it, it was just it it came to me and it, the art of course in, in a way is is um, the, his being a usurious money lender and a painter is in a way incongruous. And I wanted that incongruity, which hopefully made the reader not exactly know what the heck direction it was going in. Excellent. The middle direction is very good. <laughs> so you really favor a Rex Stout sort of um structure for your story. I mean, how many of us have not, you know, been in the study where Neuro Wolf assembles everybody and there's the yellow chair and, you know, the whole bit. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting way, <clears throat> excuse me, writing it. Um, and I, you know, you clearly enjoy that. The barbershop then becomes the Neuro Wolf study and yes. you get everybody there to sort of dissect the whole plot. So is that is that just what came to you or was that an homage to somebody or why do you structure the book that way? Uh, two reasons. One, it did come to me that way, but 
I'm sure one of the reasons it came to me is because, yeah, I've read a lot of Rick Stout in my life, but like recently, I've also watched a lot of Death in Paradise, and that's how they do it on Death in Paradise. You're right. It's a fun show, isn't it? It is. I love it. Uh, and there's now a new spinoff called Paradise Something that's just uh, debuting. Um, but anyway, there, there are a number of shows that I've seen and books that I've read that use that convention as a way to resolve the plot and, you know, come up with who did what. And I just, um, I felt natural writing it that way. I think it fits, you know, it's a bit old fashioned. I think it fits your time period would be another, you know, another reason to do that. Um, yeah, people ask me why I do more than one crime at a time in the book. And it's for what you said earlier, it's, you know, policemen don't have the luxury of working one case, you know, and, and I just felt it, it would be somewhat realistic to go, okay, I got a case, I got another case, and let's deal with them. Yeah, if you read Ed McBain and, you know, his 87th Precinct series, he was very realistic about that. Private Eye novels and Amateur Sleuths, they have the luxury of just pursuing you know, one case or one plot, but, you know, cops don't. Right. So, Heather, I, you know, I haven't read all 22, I mean, 200 of your books. Have you actually <laughs> written, I mean, this is embarrassing for me to ask this because I should know the answer. Have you written crime novels? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, I have a F FBI series and then one, one is an FBI slash paranormal, one is an FBI uh, right now, um, I've, I've done many standalones. This one's that's four books on the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and it's a FBI uh, agent who winds up working with the uh, an agent from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and the killings are all cult oriented. But they, through the four books, they center on each of the horsemen, and then they, you know, last book is the conclusion and. Uh, and Rick, like I said, we make sure the bad guy's caught <laughs> so they will find out what it is. But um, yeah, the last, I would say, 10 years of my life have been mainly focused on uh, thrillers. I've done a couple of sci-fi with John Land and um, a young adult sci-fi and uh, romance. I mean, it's been a long Thankfully, a long career. I've done a vampire series. I've done. Uh, I knew you'd done a lot, and it seems to me that I first met you at Thriller Fest. Um, I think so I kind of knew the answer, um, you know, to the question. But um, I always like the guest host to have a bit of a spotlight too, and we do. Oh, the thank you, thank so you. That's why I, I don't know, but. Um, so in an FBI scenario, because I've talked to Catherine Coulter a lot as well, you know, the FBI agents generally don't work just one case at a time either. They do. They do sometimes. That was one of the great, amazing things about Thriller Fest. Um, one of the things we did for years and years was a day before the uh, convention actually started, they would open up a, a classroom for us at the New York office of the FBI. Oh, yeah. And I could never figure out, yeah, like why would these FBI people who are so busy talk to us? And it was it was really kind of charming because one of the agents I was talking to said, we actually want people to think that we're warm and cuddly <laughs> because we need help, you know, from the American people. We often need help. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a wonderful thing for us to get to speak to authors uh, because that way we are not betrayed as, you know, you know, simply people snooping around trying to get into something of your, you know, that, so that uh, authors learn and come out the right way. They've also gotten us to, uh, thrillers also gotten us to the CIA. So uh, it's, it's an amazing group where we've gotten to do all kinds of things that are incredibly helpful. And then even the smaller ones, I go to something called Key West Mystery Fest, or I did for years. And um, Key West is such a community that you get the local police, you get Florida Department of Law Enforcement, you get Coast Guard, you can get one of the two marshals assigned down there um, because it is small. You really get, I was a theater major, it's, you know, so I don't have the background, you know, a lot of people do. Uh, and so it's, for me, the research with this type of event is amazing and wonderful. Oh, there's also the Police Writers Academy. Let me not forget that one. That's a great one for authors too. It is a wonderful organization. Someday I'll tell you the origin story because it actually started here. Um, I know. I know. 
you know, I was drunk. It's the only excuse I have, <laughs> nonetheless. But, you know, that's interesting because I think I worked on the assumption that the FBI agents generally did work more than one case at a time. So I'm sometimes yes, sometimes no. Okay, so it probably just varies the size of the office and how big the case is and, you know, all kinds of other other stuff. I know John Sanford, you know, segued into a U.S. Marshal because he wanted to give Lucas Davenport a chance to run around the country and not just be in yeah. Minnesota. Um, and so the Marshal's office, I think, is underutilized in crime fiction, although they have fairly specific jobs. And so it doesn't maybe it doesn't fit that well. Into it, an again, it depends. Office. Like I said, Key West has two, two marshals. So when they have to do something, they actually call on the police, the Coast Guard, you know, somebody because there's only two of them. Um, right. So like, it always depends on where you are, you yeah. know, and, and what the um, size of the um, office is. And, and to solve that for me, I'm best known right now for the crew of Hunters, which is on its 38th. And this year they're going to the same thing you were just saying. This year it's being called Blackbird because they're opening their crew of hunters office in Europe so that uh, we have a chance to go a few more places. Cool. That's very exciting. I'm going to make it this year. Last year I had a leg injury and I couldn't face going to New York if I couldn't walk. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, well, we're getting I'm, to give the, the award this year to Charlene Harris and I love her and I get to give it to her. So I'm very happy. Cool. That is wonderful. She's, oh, what an amazing woman she is. I once did a breakfast event at some conference. It was like eight in the morning and I thought nobody was going to come. You know, I mean, I sort of slouched down there, you know, get a cup of coffee. It was greeted by 300 people. I thought, oh my God, you know. What? She's so lovely. She's just, although, yeah. but I mean, Rick, really seriously think about it. Most of the people we know who are, you know, the ones you would recognize who you would really know anywhere are lovely. Um, but then again, I mean, Charlene's just uh, the she, sweetest human being known to man, I think. She's a real legend and yeah. hilarious at all times. She's naturally one of the funniest people that yeah. I have ever met. Well, Rick, let's come back to you and ask, what are you working on? You've mentioned that you are writing a book that is not a Pinon Scorpion, but an older, but do you anticipate another case for Pinon? Uh, yeah, I'm working on that book already. I've got a, I won't say a significant part of it written, but quite a bit. Um, and uh, I can tell you what two of the cases are in the book, if you'd like to hear. Uh, um, one of them has to do with a young female magician who has an illusion that is so spectacular that even Harry Houdini, who I write into the book, can't figure it out. But everywhere she performs, mayhem and robberies occur but she can't be in two places at once. And it takes Scorpion when she comes to Haxford to try to figure out what's going on, the secret behind her illusion and what's going on around her performances. And the second one is about a man who has a near-death experience and writes a book about it and um, is subsequently killed and does not come back. And that's for Scorpion to figure out. <laughs> wow. Well, I can hardly wait. You know, I, I blew it because I was plunged into this without um, introducing either Heather or Rick. And so I should mention to you all that Rick's background is the musician, songwriter, music producer, record company executive. He's also a social activist and a journal currently publishing executive, I already know that, at Blackstone, because we talked about that. And his first novel, Pinion Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives, was selected as an Amazon editor's pick and also chosen as one of the year's best new debut novels by Publishers Weekly. So, bravo. That's an interesting transition from your, your background um, into writing. But on the other hand, maybe that accounts for, you know, I think people trained in music probably probably can do voices extremely well. Would that be a fair statement? When you say voices, do you mean as, as a speaker reader? No, or as I mean, I'm sorry, as a character, as your dialogue. Let me, I could have been a little more specific there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, the musicality that I've had around me my whole life has affected my writing and, and my cadence and my tempo and, everything I do. I think you're absolutely right about that, Barbara. 
for sure. Well, hardly help, you know, I see all your wonderful awards on the wall back there. <laughs> it reminded me that I'd failed in my duty. Anyway, Jacob, come and join us and tell us if you have any questions that have come in that you would like to pose. I love this part where he comes back on screen. I always feel like it's Shakespeare or something. <laughs> Yay. Hey guys, yeah, we definitely have a few comments and questions um, on Facebook. This is actually pretty similar to the question that you just asked, Barbara. Um, how does your um, music inspire you to write a story? Have you ever imagined a soundtrack to your books? Uh, well, actually, I've composed a Scorpions theme song. I've composed it and performed it uh, and recorded it, and it's on the first audiobook as the background music. Um, so, yes, I, um, I also uh, put together a Spotify uh, soundtrack to the book, if you will, of the songs of the era. But also I'll go back to the late 1960s where I co-wrote a science fiction rock opera that almost became a Broadway play. It came that close to being produced on Broadway. And I, um, I guess I've always kind of uh, believed in the intersection of music and literature. In a way to me, music is a type of literature, just a different type of literature. Well, it's true, it's storytelling. It is. Absolutely. Is it is that the is this the first book that you've done that would coincide uh, music with your novel? Well, this was my first novel, so for sure. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. or are you planning on doing that again? Um, Have you done that for this book? Because this is the second one. No, I'm using the same theme because it's Corbin's theme. You know, it's not really uh, about a specific book. It's more about the character and setting the uh, the environment, if you will, through the music. Um, but yeah, I've I've actually thought about that. I uh, that I might bring music more into the novels and in, in some way utilize music tangentially. I just haven't figured out exactly what I want to do yet. We we can talk about that. I've I've. Yes, on, on YouTube and a couple of other places, there's Heather Graham and the Slush Pile, um, and we've done two CDs that are out there. They, they, they go in with uh, one had a lot to do with New Orleans, uh, where your conference actually for that was to put money back in after Katrina, and um, you know the, the I think that's I do not have your career or whatever, but I did start out in in uh, musical theater, so I do think that that definitely. Rick's answer is true. It has a huge impact on what you do, the and, things that are going on in your head as you're working too. And I and I have Heather Graham in the slush pile on my <laughs> playlist on my uh, on my iPhone music. You know, I music. I've got all your songs from both albums. Okay. So they're there, and I hear them when I drive regularly. <laughs> Thank you. They're good. <laughs> Thank you. Jacob? Yeah, um, did you want to talk a little bit about your background um, further um, and how that kind of uh, put your life in a trajectory that it otherwise wouldn't have? Well, in the really, music industry, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I kind of have to just if for a second go back to my parents because my dad, aside from reading a book every single day of his life, I never remember seeing my father not come home from work, eat dinner, and then sit down and read a book. But he and my mother also were very musically inclined. So from a very early age, they introduced me to people, people like Huddy Ledbetter and Miriam Makiba and, you know, mm. you know um, the, the Weavers. And, you know, it, it was just... It wasn't just Pat Boone, if you will, you know, or something like that. And, and I got interested. And then I saw Gene Autry sitting on his horse champion, playing guitar, singing back in the saddle again. And I immediately wanted to play the guitar. And I did. And I, but my parents made me study classical guitar. So at the age of eight, I started playing classical guitar. And then when I heard rock and roll, I immediately said, the heck with country music, the heck with classical music, I want to be a rock and roller. And so I started playing rock and roll when I was uh, 12. 
I even had to be fingerprinted by the New York City Police Department because I was underage and I was playing in bars at 12 years old. So I had to have a cabaret card. Um, and so I was kind of in music my whole life. Um, and I was a, I played in rock bands for years. I produced over 50 records, one of which got a Grammy nomination. Another was uh, used as the bed of a Coke commercial. Another was used by the NFL as their intro and outro music. Um, and, but I also had a kind of right brain, left brain thing going on because in addition to the creative side, I also had a business brain and that's why I became an executive in the music industry. And part of my being an executive, and it's true in publishing as well, is I know what it's like sitting on the other side of the desk So as, as the creator. So I always want to make sure that the creators have are taken care of by the business people, that, you know, that, that they're not just a product, if you will. It's too easy to people think of books and music as products they are but it's but they're people and their lives so it really intertwined and meshed in me both the creative and the business end um and i just always loved business i mean if you were going to ask me who what, what would when i was a kid who would i have liked to have been had i known he existed i would have told you i wanted to be mick jagger Okay, that, that's who I would have loved to have been. Um, I don't know every part of his life, but certainly a lot of the parts of his life. And um, I stayed in the music industry until I retired and then I got bored and then I got introduced to a writing group by my next door neighbor who was a poet. And I just started writing books and, and short stories instead of music and songs. And it was equally fulfilling and interesting and exciting. Heather, do you want to add to that? Oh, I mean, I, I mean it's his story, but nonetheless. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, I did, I can, mine's slightly different. I was, uh, let's say, it was in the world's worst kung fu movie ever filmed. Um, a, co a couple of others. I did a bunch of commercials. Knew I was in trouble on commercials when my dog was in the same commercial and the dog was paid more. Um, but, <laughs> I loved it. I love it to this day. We put shows on at VoucherCon all the time. Um, but I was doing dinner theater and we were not an equity state. And I was, by the time we had three of the five children, I really wasn't making enough money to be out of the house. And uh, for my husband and my mother, it's like, you know, you spend your life with books. Why don't you write one? And so I skewed into that. And I also did the other thing about them. I, I like I said to this day, I love theater. I will go to anything. I love music. I love theater. I'm, I'm, you know, bring me to a concert, bring me to a show anywhere. But um, I also, uh, same thing. And I think so many writers were like this. I just constantly read. I had parents who read. Uh, I, I think that had a lot to do with it. So it was, uh, I also wanted to spend time with kids and doing theater and then bartending on the side to afford to do theater. <laughs> um, it uh, it just was, I wanted to spend time with kids. I wound up with five of them and, and didn't want to be away all the time. Yeah. Although actually then I wound up going to conferences but I was still home most of the time. Well, yeah, I think um, I, I think about Mary Higgins Clark and her story, you know, of yeah. having to sit down and write, or P.D. James for that matter. You know, there's yeah. several, wonderful writers whose impetus was they wanted to stay home with their families or their children. Yeah. And um, and yet they also was helpful to make money. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. At that right. time. And it was fun because after, I think I'd been doing it for, um, I don't know, uh, maybe, you know, somewhere between five and 10 years. Um, my husband could quit and work for me. That worked well because he could do some of the driving then, <laughs> which is, a lot of people with a lot of kids will tell you if they could have anything, give them a chauffeur because <laughs> yeah, there's so many places to go. Boy, that's a good point. Jacob, um, do you have the signed copies of Pinot? Yes, I do. If you want to open it up and show the signature, I wanted to make a point that we do actually have this book signed by Rick and in at the store right now as we speak. There it is. And you can see the autograph. <clears throat> so before we run out, it'd be a really good idea to buy one. Um, we were very pleased with the sales for your first book. So 
we'll hope that this will follow through. Are there any other questions, Jacob, that you That's want to Unless Heather, you wanted to add something? Um, it's a wonderful book. <laughs> you definitely need to get it and read it. And uh, I, th I think they're probably Rick like me. I, I absolutely love reading and this one was truly enjoyable. And as I said, fascinating, the detail, everything is wonderful about it. Well, thank you. And I, I want to encourage people to read Heather's books because I've read a number of them and I love Heather's writing too. So it's mutual, trust me. Well, she is a famous bestseller. So, you know, <laughs> lots of people read her books. And I, I aspire to be Heather, trust right. me. I, I aspire <laughs> You're probably starting too late <laughs> to, to quite hit 200. But good luck to you. So, Heather, I, if I don't see you before, I'll see you at Thriller Fest. I'll oh, that's great. I'm so glad you're going to be there this year. I yeah, am too. Beautiful. I really am. I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to, to purchase an autographed copy of Pina and Scorpion. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.